Tom went to a Cardinals game, and he went there with a co-worker and a potential client. And about the, the third inning, the client got up and went to the concession stand to get three beers. Brought those three beers back, and uh, Tom uh, was handed one, his co-worker was handed one, and uh, he thought about what he was to do because this client needed to really sign this last piece of paper for this big deal that they'd been working on for a year. Okay, what do you do? What do you do? You know, he didn't want to offend the client and he didn't want to do something to hamper his witness to his co-worker because he'd been talking to his co-worker about Christ and about the difference that Christ had made in his life. What was he did to do? He can't be ungrateful for what his client has done and we're to give thanks in all things, right? Right. He just didn't feel right about refusing that beer. Jennifer went shopping with uh, her daughter. They went shopping for a new dress. And they looked from one mall to another mall to another store to another store and just could not find the right dress. They, they were either the wrong color, the wrong style, it just didn't fit right, whatever. They couldn't find it. Finally, towards the end of the day, they went to a store and they found a dress. But that dress fit her daughter too well, revealed a lot more than what she wanted it to reveal. Her daughter said, come on, Mom. I mean, we have shopped all day. We have looked for a dress. The kids wear stuff that are worse than this. Why don't we just go ahead and get this? And her mom just said, well, I don't know. Mom, you're being old-fashioned. You need to get up to the times. What's Jennifer to do? What is she to do? It just was kind of a hard decision to make in light of what was going on. What are the consistent issues here with these two examples? They're, they're, they're both situations in which there's feelings of pressure. There, there's the influence of others. Um, as opposed to living and making a decision upon truth of God's word. God has not promised us that our life would be easy, uh, that it would feel good to obey him all the time, but what he has promised us, he has promised us blessings if we follow him and obey him. The question we need to pose to ourselves are, are we people of the book? Do we really believe what God's word says every day? Every day. When things come up, are we committed to obedience? 
the title of this session is Obeying God Even When It's Hard and Does Not Feel Right. One could subtitle this as being Living by Faith, Not by Feelings. I think a better subtitle would be Living by Doctrine, Not by Emotions. Living by Doctrine, Not by Emotions. What is doctrine? What is doctrine? Webster says that doctrine is a principle or position or a body of principles in a branch of knowledge or system of belief. We live every day, every moment by what we believe or by our doctrine or or by our worldview. That's how we live. One example of this is climate change. If you believe that climate change will cause massive flooding, everyone will die, um, then we will live to eliminate climate change. We will not drive a car, but if we do drive a car, it's going to be an electric car. We will promote green energy. We will recycle everything we can, even the can. We will promote Earth Day. Our doctrine of climate change will actually dictate how we live. What we do, what we don't do. This is the same thing with believers. We live what we believe. We live what we believe. If you trust what the scripture says about salvation in Romans 10.9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Then when the feelings of doubt come about, you can recall the verse and say, I am saved because of what the truth of Scripture says. You will live by that truth. Not by your feelings, not by your emotions. Note that it does not eliminate the feelings from arising. You will have those feelings occasionally. But you will act upon the truth of God's word. You will act upon that. So we do live by doctrine or we live by our feelings. So what do you want to live by? The truth of God's word or by what you think, what you feel by your own emotions at the time that tough times come about. What does scripture say concerning how we're to live? Well, Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 17 or 14 through 17, he says, you, however, continue in the things you've learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you've learned them from, and that from childhood You have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Where did Timothy learn and become convinced of the truth? He learned them from the sacred writings, from the Old Testament. And Paul is encouraging him to continue in those truths. Continue in those truths. So let's turn to Scripture. Let's turn to scripture and see about examples where doctrine dictated the action 
of the individual. And then we'll look at an example of where feelings dictated the action of an individual. Okay? So if you will, um, turn to Genesis chapter 6. We're going to take a look at Noah. I'm going to, we're going to take a look at him and see how he lived and what scripture says that he did. Okay? Genesis chapter 6, starting uh, verse 1. I'm going to be reading out the legacy uh, standard Bible, so it'll be a little bit different than the New American um, today. Okay, verse 1. Now it happened that when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. Okay, let's see. We've got, we've got multiplication of, of the people there uh, on earth. Drop down to verse 5. It says, When Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is the condition that we find ourselves here in chapter 6 of Genesis. There's evil throughout the land. The heart of man was evil. Drop down to verses 8 and 9. But Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among those in his generation. Noah walked with God. Isn't that neat? Here is a man amongst a group of people that walks with God. Now, what does it mean that, that Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh and that Noah was a righteous man and blameless in his time and walked with God? What does that mean? It, it means that God sought after, or Noah sought after God. His heart was toward God. He was a man of integrity. Was he perfect in the sense of sinlessness? No, he wasn't perfect. But that was his bent, was to be obedient to God. Keep in mind that Noah didn't have the Torah. He didn't have anything to read concerning God. So the truths of God were handed down probably orally from Adam. And they came down to Noah. So Noah knew about God and he feared God. He had an awe of God. So did Noah live in a community where other believers were there? No, he didn't. Verse 12, and God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. All men were living corruptly. That is the condition. 13 through 21, God tells Noah he will destroy the earth and Noah is to make an ark in which he and his family will be saved from the destruction. What could have been Noah's thoughts? God tells him to build an ark because God's going to flood the earth. What's a flood? Never seen a flood before. What's a flood? I don't feel qualified. I'm not a shipbuilder. I just don't feel right about this. No one else is building a boat. 
I don't feel this is the right time for boat building. I mean, I listened to the weatherman. He said, for the next five years, it'll be clear and sunny. Did I hear correctly? Uh, this just doesn't feel right. That may have been some thoughts. But did he direct his actions based upon his thoughts? No. What does scripture say about Noah? Look in verse 22. Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him. So he did. Interesting. The phrase there. God, that Noah did and he did. Bookends of doing. Doing what? What God commanded him. He did. Noah sought after God. His heart was towards him. <clears throat> Note that scripture makes this statement twice. At the beginning of the ark building, there in, in verse 22, but then if you mosey on down to chapter 7, verse 5, it says the same thing, that Noah did what God commanded the whole time from beginning to end of building that ark. Noah did. He was obedient. Was Noah the talk of the town? Probably so. Did his family question Noah? Maybe. What was Noah's doctrine? He knew to obey God regardless of how he felt. His doctrine, his doctrine dictated how he lived. He was obedient to God. How did things turn out for him? Well, I can tell you pretty safely that they turned out pretty good. Because we're all descendants of Noah. Things... Or what things that are taught in scripture are looked at by the world to be unreasonable, a waste of time and poor use of money. And we could list some things. How about coming to church during COVID? That's foolishness. Isn't it? That's foolishness. How about giving to an organization that's primary objective is not humanitarian efforts? Isn't that foolish? Now, it, is, it doesn't mean that that organization is doing away with humanitarian actions, but that's not their primary goal. The primary goal is spreading of the gospel. That would look foolish to people. Let's look at another Old Testament example. This is going to be a bad example. All right? So let's look at Saul. Turn to 1 Samuel. And, and we're going to be ripping along here. 1 Samuel chapter 13 the example of Saul is one showing disobedience because he let his feelings dictate his actions. He did not live by sound doctrine, but by feelings of what he saw. 1 Samuel chapter 13, uh, verses 1 through 8. Saul was 30 years of old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 42 years over Israel. And Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, of which 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel. 
while a thousand were with Jonathan at Gibeah of Benjamin. But he sent away the rest of the people, each to his tent. And Jonathan struck the garrison of the Philistines that was there in Gibeah, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. When all the Israel heard the news that Saul had struck the garrison of the Philistines, and also that the Israel that Israel had become odious to the Philistines, the people then summons to Saul at Gilgal. Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. And the people liked the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. And they came up and camped in Michmash, east of beth Now the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed. Then the people hid themselves in caves, in thickets, in cliffs, in cellars, and pits. And also some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal. And all the people followed him trembling. So he waited seven days, according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. You got the picture here? Here's this great army coming up against Saul. Saul has got his troops, but they're nowhere near the number that the Philistines have. And in fact, the people that are following him are scattering and they're trembling. He's got a problem. He has got a problem. So Saul, who had been chosen as anointed as king in chapters 9 and 10, he was confirmed as king in chapter 12. A test of obedience to God has arisen. What is he going to do? The enemy is like the sand which is in the seashore in abundance. What do I have? I have people hiding in caves, in thickets, in cliffs, in pits. And and those that are with me, they're trembling. Ah, Not much of a real good morale among the troops. Verse 9, so Saul says, Bring near to me the burnt offering and peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. Saul and the king takes matters in his own hands against what the prophet Samuel had told him back in chapter 10. Verse 10. And as soon as he finished offering his burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, Well, because I saw that the people were scattering from me and you did not come within the appointed days and the Philistines were assembled at Michmash. What is Saul doing here? He's passing the buck. He's passing the buck. He's saying because the people were scattering, so it's the people's fault. Because you, the prophet, did not come when you were supposed to. It's your fault. And the enemy, what were they doing? They were assembling. Something has to be done, and it has to be done now, and it has to be done quickly. So I took matters in my own hands. He 
He was not repentant of sin that he had committed. He made up excuses for his actions that he took. Verse 12, Therefore I said, Now Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not entreated the favor of Yahweh, so I forced myself yeah, and offered the burnt offerings. And Samuel said to Saul, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of who? Samuel? No, of Yahweh, your God, which he commanded you, for now Yahweh would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not endure. Yahweh has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and Yahweh has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what Yahweh commanded you. King Saul acted according to what he saw. According to how he felt. He felt like he had to act now. Things were not looking good. Who's in control? Is God not in control? Or or is Saul in control? Who's in control here? God is faithful to his word. He had not had he not promised earlier that he would actually defeat the enemies of Israel? What kind of pressures do we feel in life? And how do we succumb to those pressures? Those outside pressures. We see things, we hear things, but we don't act according to the doctrine of God's word. Let's go on. Third example is Job. He's a good one. This is a good, good example. Turn to Job chapter 1. Job is an example of man that lived by sound doctrine and not by circumstances that surrounded him. In verse 1 we see here's a man, and uh, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And this man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. So Job was blameless. He was a man of integrity. Another man of integrity. He was upright, straight, and level-headed. Feared God. He stood in awe of God. Turned away from evil. He, He turned aside from any evil that came about. He did not have scripture either. He didn't have the Torah He didn't have the New Testament. He didn't have anything. So again, we see somebody else that is going by the the oral hand down from Adam and from Moses, most likely. He had heard about the flood, most likely, um, and creation. So he knew about God and was in awe of him. Verse 2, Job was a family man. Verse 3, he had great wealth. He was a man in good standing of the region there. Verse 5, Job appealed to God on behalf of his family in case they had sinned. He was a family man. Everything was in his favor. Things were looking good. Then in verse 14 through 15, here we go. 
a messenger came and told him that the Sabines came and took the oxen and donkeys and killed his servants. And while that servant was speaking, another one came. In verse 16, fire from heaven came down and consumed his sheep and servants. And while that servant was speaking, another servant came and said, the Chaldeans took his camels and killed his servants and all Job's livestock. His livelihood had just been decimated, taken away from him, totally. His source of income. While that servant was speaking, another servant came, verse 18, and while his sons and daughters were eating, a tornado came through and killed them. Now Job's family is killed, the family he treasured. How did Job feel? What were his emotions? Was he mad at God? Did he feel like life was not worth living and decide to commit suicide? Did he go to his house and sulk and say, woe is me? No matter how blameless and upright Job was, this was not an easy thing for him to deal with. It was a great loss. He, he felt the loss and grieved for the loss of his family. Ten kids dying in one day. Not only one day, one hour, one minute, they were dead. The loss of livelihood. All this must have been overwhelming to Job. Your doctrine has to rule during these times, not your feelings. Did Job grieve over these losses? Absolutely. He grieved over the loss of his servants, over the loss of his family. But did that grief rule his heart? No, it didn't. What was Job's doctrine? Look in verse 20 and 21. Then, after all this, Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came into my mother, came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. Yahweh gave, and Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. Through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he give offense to God. He worshipped him. He acknowledged God. He was in awe of God. Job knew God was sovereign in all things. Yahweh was in control from the beginning to the end. God gives, God takes away. He is sovereign. If this isn't enough, we'll go into chapter 2 where Job's health is attacked. Verse 7 through 8, his whole body is attacked with boils. These are infections on his body, all over his body. Did Job deserve the wiping out of his livestock or the death of his children or the attack on his body? Was there a great sin that he had committed? No. 
Then we see the encouragement of his wife. Chapter 2, verse 9. Then his wife said, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the wickedly foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good for God and not accept calamity? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Even when his wife told him to curse God, he was not going to curse God. Note that these things, these these phrases used to describe Job, uh, they they were used at, at these two different times uh, before his wife, or before his, his the attack on his body, and then afterwards. Um, Job lived by his theology. He didn't live by his feelings. That did not dictate him. He could have been bitter. He could have cursed God, but he did not. Phil Johnson says of this passage, Just as human words fail to describe or relieve such deep despair, human emotions don't help us make sense of our misery. If you want to sort through the problem of evil... You have to think sensibly and theologically and biblically and do not let your emotions rule your mind. Note that Phil does not say we're not to have feelings. I want to make that clear. We do have emotions, but don't let the emotions rule how we live. Fourth example is is David, another good one. There is no king recorded in scripture that more is written about than King David. And we see his life starting 1 Samuel chapter 16 through 2 Samuel chapter 2 and then into Kings chapter 2. We see the good, the bad, and the ugly of King David. We see the inner David as he writes songs to be sung in the Psalms. We also read God's thoughts about David in Acts chapter 13, verse 22. I found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. That's God speaking. Was David perfect? Absolutely not. Neither have any of these other examples been perfect. But they have a bent towards being obedient, the desire towards being obedient to God in all things. Did David have the same bent? Absolutely. We see even a number of instances where David could have been ruled by feelings, but instead he trusted God for the outcome. He lived out biblical doctrine. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17, David is on the run from Saul. Why? Saul feels threatened by David. Why did Saul feel threatened by a shepherd boy? Come on. Get real here. Well, we see in 1 Samuel chapter 17 that David kills Goliath. 
the giant, the enemy of the Philistines, when it was a do or die situation for Israel, God was behind David. We see then in 1 Samuel chapter 18, when David returned from killing the Philistine army, that women were meeting the king, Saul, and David, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. David had the nation behind him. In first or in Samuel chapter first Samuel chapter eighteen verse one, David became the best buds of Saul's son. He had Jonathan supporting him, the king's son. In first Samuel chapter eighteen verse thirty indicates that Saul's army took note of David was that he was wiser than they were. King's army was in support of Saul, the shepherd boy. Finally, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we see David being chosen by God to be king. God was for him. God was for him. That's quite a support group. Wouldn't you agree? Did David ever face a situation where feelings may have taken over obedience to God? Absolutely. Flip on to 1 Samuel chapter 22. David is on the run from Saul, who is seeking to kill him. We see David taking his family to the king of Moab for safety and then headed to the wilderness of Negev. Verses 3 through 5 there. This is not a lush area, it's not a tropical resort. It is a desert area. It's a good place to hide. In this setting, David could have been fearful as to what might happen to him. In verses 7 through, or seven through 15, Saul calls out to the servants saying that they are, they've all been against him. He finds out that Ahimelech, the priest, furnishes David with bread and a weapon and the sword of Goliath. Saul orders the death of the priests. One of the priests escaped there in verses 20 through 22 and tells David what has happened. What is David's response? Verse 23, stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. For you are safe with me. That priest is saying, yeah, right. Can you imagine what that priest thought? He says, what are, you, what are you saying? I'm safe with you. Saul's out to get you. He's out to get me. We're all safe, right? You've got to be kidding me. David, you're, you've lost your mind. We need to get out of here. How did David have the assurance of safety? Huh. This is great. This is the setting for when David pens a song. And we look and turn to Psalms 63. Turn there. This is so glorious. From Psalm 63, we see David's heart. We see his mind, what he's thinking. 
We can see that, that David did not trust in his feelings. What he did trust in was God and what God had promised. What he had promised. Verses 1 through 2, 1 and 2. David seeks after God. He says, Oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land without water. Thus I have beheld you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Verses 3 through 5. David praises God for who he is. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips lips will laud you. Thus I will bless you as long as I lift. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied with the fatness and richness, and my mouth offers praises with lips of joyful songs. He's singing this while Saul is in hot pursuit. Verse 6 through 8, David focuses on God, what he has done in the past. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Verses 9 through 10, David knows the outcome of evil people. Says, but those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be portions for foxes. Now, how does David know that? How does it continue on? Verse 11. But the king will be glad in God. Everyone who swears by him will boast, for the mouths of those who speak lies will be closed. What does he call himself? A king. How does he know that? God has expressed that to him, that he will be king. He knows that. He knows that Saul will not kill him, because David has to be king. So, who's a better person to be with than the king? That priest, he ought to rest easy at night. He's with King David. David acknowledges that he will be king. He knows that he isn't the king yet, but he believes in what God has promised back in 1 Samuel chapter 16 before all this occurred. He will be king. How is it that David can say, you are safe with me? Because God, because David obeyed God and put his trust not in himself or others, but he put his trust in God and what God had promised. 1 Samuel chapter 23 verse 14 says, And David stayed in the wilderness, in the strongholds, and in remaining in the hill country, in the wilderness of Zeph. And Saul sought after him every day. The two words that are so precious. But God. But God did not give him into his hand. Who is in control? David, Saul? No. God is. 
God is sovereign. David is confident that God will accomplish his will in his time. David lived out his doctrine. He trusted in God in circumstances that could he could have had the fear of man. One can search scriptures and you can this is just the tip of the iceberg. I've got lots of notes of cases where people lived out their doctrine. You can look at Daniel, Jeremiah, Mary, Peter, Paul. You can see where they lived out the doctrine of God in His Word. Were these people perfect? By no means were they perfect. But they have a bent towards seeking after God, desiring to be obedient to Him. You can also see in Scripture the opposite. You can see those people that did not live according to sound doctrine, but lived according to how they felt at the moment, such as the nation of Israel. They feared to go into the land that God had promised them because of of reports of what they heard. How about David? You can look at David too. You can see where he failed. A number of the kings that ruled. You can look at Peter. Those are some areas that you can look at. Scripture sees where they failed. And we can learn from them as well. The question is, are you going to live by sound doctrine? Or by feelings? By emotions? Are you going to live to obedience to God even when it is hard? Even when it's hard. Are you going to spend time learning from Scripture how to live? And that takes time. And it takes effort. And you've got to sit down and do the hard work. But is it worth it? Absolutely. Because in your life then you can glorify God in how you live. So are you going to spend the time in Scripture? I hope so. I encourage you to do so. So that when you're in situations like Tom at the ballpark or Jennifer with her daughter shopping, you will be able to act out your life in accordance to sound biblical doctrine, not feelings of the moment. I'd like to leave you with these two verses out of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 25 and 26. Do not be afraid of sudden dread nor of the storm of the wicked when it comes. For Yahweh will be your confidence. He will be at your side and will keep your foot from being caught. Do you believe it? I trust that you believe that and that your life will live according to sound doctrine. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for your word. I thank you that you are truthful and that we can look and see and learn from your word how you are consistent, that you have promises for us, that you are sovereign in all things, and that we can trust you 
Father, help us in that. Sometimes we are weak. Sometimes our emotions get the best of us. Father, may may your Holy Spirit bring to mind scriptures which we can remember that can help us through those difficult times and that we might live a life honoring, pleasing, glorifying you. In your name we pray. Amen.